Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 153rd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that always makes sure your collection has a trophy to put on the shelf. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Are you uh, staying warm up there? I've been in the ivory tower for the last three days. I've barely poked my head out. I think I went and dropped off a Mythic Edition that I sold for full freight the other night. This morning, I went right back in my rabbit hole. Yeah, there is, I think, at latest count, about 700 closings in the Buffalo area for the next two days. Uh, the every county office is closed. Uh, it's pretty nuts. It's not even there's not even that much snow out a uh, snow on the ground at the moment, although it's coming down pretty good. But I think uh, we have a we have a high of four degrees Fahrenheit the next two days. So that's like, what, negative 15 something Celsius, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nasty up here, too. Um, even in the metric system. Yeah. <laughs> It's a yeah. It's a little warmer if you're in the metric system, but even still, it's too cold. Yeah, it's like <laughs> thirty centimeters of snow on the ground and all that. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, eight furloughs <laughs> for longs. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today, MTGPrice.com, to manage your collection, track your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Um, before we jump into the agenda for this week a couple quick things off the top did you hear about this craziness with mythic edition all the various tomfoolery no i saw your tweet about it uh about an hour ago but i didn't see anything uh, along with it so i was looking to hear what you had to say on the topic yeah so multiple people have reached out to me to let me know that they got more than they ordered from the eBay orders, <laughs> which certainly, if it's widespread, would settle any arguments about whether you should be holding off, um, depending on just how widespread it was. It also leaves me suspicious, as as does the tales of the uh, Ravnica Allegiant um, super boxes, right? Because there was boxes that had like packs that all, had all rares or all mythics or something recently, or like multiple rares of the same rare impacts and we've seen that kind of thing from wizards multiple times over the years and it almost always comes like comes to the forefront during the first couple of weeks of a set release and i have long been suspicious that those are just marketing tactics like viral marketing tactics to get people excited to buy something um, well they did the um back in theros they did the god packs yeah and it was all 15 cards were the gods which is you know you can paint all of these other cases as uh errors in collation but there's no way that collation was going to lead to exactly one of every god out of the 15. So that, you know, we know that that would be intentional, which leads us to believe that the rest of that type of behavior would be. Yeah, and Zendikar block, original Zendikar block had the, had the treasures where they bought up a yeah. bunch of uh, reserve list cards and put them in the packs very sporadically. That was so cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, whether, whether or not you have your tinfoil hat on for all of this, um, facts remain that this has been 
for different reasons, just as much of a clusterfuck as the first release of Mythic Edition in the fall. First time website goes down, uh, people can't order effectively, orders get canceled, have to be rebooked, and they end up sending out the box hoppers as an apology. Then they decide, okay, well, this time we're going to fix it. We're going to use eBay. Problem is on eBay, it was really uh, easy for everybody to figure out how much inventory was actually available because you could just right click and look at the view, the source code and part of the HTML uh, call outs um, included an inventory of 19,000 units. So we can say with some relative degree of certainty that that is about how many they they manufactured of this product. Do you I'd say, did you see that they um, they delisted a bunch and relisted it to to change the inventory as well? Because I had somebody message me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've tra- I've tracked all this pretty carefully. So exactly, this is what happened. They originally had nineteen thousand. Then it started making the rounds on social media that there was nineteen thousand, and hence no rush. They sold roughly eight or nine thousand units in day one, but a large chunk of that was because they went. They also screwed up by allowing people to order up to 25 units at a time. This is after promising that part of the fix from last time was that they were going to limit units per household to two. Now, the problem is, by the next day, sales had slowed to such a degree that they decided they wanted to further obfuscate what was going on. So they uh, tore down the original listing that had um, led to all the sales on the first day. To such an extent that people's shipping trackings wasn't working properly because the listing that was associated with the purchases was completely removed from eBay. So messed up a bunch of shipping tracking situations um, where you couldn't go into your eBay account and get tracking information because the, the purchase still existed, but the listing was gone. Then they relaunched the listing with the remainder of the inventory. So to revisit this math, 19,000 units created, so far as we know. At one point on day one, they revised that down to 14,000. So they basically lopped off uh, four or 5,000 units. And then when they were done selling for the, for the first 24 hours, they re- removed that listing, recreated it somewhere else. And you have to assume that they didn't, if they canceled any of the multi-orders, and I had some reports that some people that placed large orders had their orders canceled down to the limit of two, but other people said that did not happen to them. Um, if some percentage of the orders from day one were in fact rolled back, then they might have only sold five or six or 7,000 units on the first day. And since then, they've only sold another couple thousand. So by best estimate, we are still like maybe not even 50% sold, maybe just over 50% sold, depending on how you want to lean on some of, on some of these numbers. But a, we're basically going to be a week later, and my prediction is that this set will still not be sold out. Yeah, and I'm not even really willing to give them credit that the they canceled the large orders. Um, they knew it wasn't moving quickly, so it seems odd that they would want to slow down those additional copies and how many people would really order that many. And out of the ones who ordered that many, they would have had to also be the, you know, they would have to cancel them. So basically, even if they're canceling, you know, five, 10, 25 count orders, I don't see that putting another thousand back in uh, circulation. So it, right. which basically it all just adds up to uh, there's probably, you know, even by conservative estimates, a good amount of this product left in the market. It's, 
it's fascinating how all of this played out because that first one went so fast and it was such a problem. People were so angry that they couldn't get it. And now this is such a hard turnaround. And I really think, to me, this is a two-pronged, really two-pronged topic. It's The first is that there's no Chase Planeswalker. We had Teferi in the first one, which could have been a fluke, but I don't know which plane, but you also took Liliana the Last Hope, which they would have had to know was pretty decent at that point. So I'm really not clear who we're supposed to look at in this batch as the the Chase Walker. And the other half of this is, that, and I really think the perception is such a huge part of it, is people saw how many there were and were like, oh, okay. You know, we've known that it was between 10 and 20,000 for all of these, but there's a huge difference between not seeing any of the numbers on the backside and people talking about how hard it is to get and so forth versus suddenly the buying process being so easy. And you're like, oh, they've sold 1,700 of these and there's no sign of it slowing down and it's still available. Like, eh, whatever. Yeah, there's still a whole bunch of other angles to explore here. So, Yes, it's satisfying to know that our earlier analysis in the in the ten to fifteen thousand range for the first set and similar analysis for other premium products was probably all, if not right on the money, in the in the right ballpark. Um, and it's it's good to have some numbers that we can hang our hat on moving forward because I can guarantee you that they're going to want to make sure the next one sells out, so there may not be as many. Um, one of the things that hamstrings them here is that they promise not to distribute through CFB via Magic Fest. I'm curious now whether they're whether when they lopped off 5,000 or so, they did that with the intent that they will, in fact, go ahead and do that anyway. Um, because I think they're like a couple of thousand away from selling out on eBay with existing posted inventory, especially if you assume that they didn't roll back most of the multi-orders on day one. Um, which leads me to believe that they're going to need some other out for the other 5,000. They're certainly not in the habit of just leaving those lying around in the warehouse and they don't have a way to distribute them otherwise. So we'll see what happens there. Now, a couple days in, I'm arguing with well, on Twitter with Stu Summers um, saying that people should just wait and see because what you can do is you can just go ahead and sell these singles if you want to test the waters and buy the product after the fact. Because the you know turnaround time from Wizards is going to be relatively quick because the stuff's all in the warehouse ready to go. And in fact, Stu ordered and got his stuff basically the next day because he lives in PA and the distribution center is in PA. So he was selling singles at the, by the time that most people, a lot of people probably still weren't even aware that the product was up for sale. And if he gets out on his singles at a reasonable clip nice and early, he can choose whether to roll the money back into additional product or... Um, you know, just, you know, call it a call it a day after a six day turnaround and move on. I'm, on the other hand, telling people, mm, I don't think, you know, Stu has pretty good contacts in the industry. Maybe he can get, get out of his singles relatively easily. Not convinced that the average magic player can pull that off, especially since a lot of the eBay listings for the singles were not looking particularly sexy. You know, you're seeing some of the lesser planeswalkers sell for 30, 35 like you can you can attribute 50 bucks of the 250 plus taxes to the packs you're getting but then you know you know the packs are not an mtg finance thing that's just a funsy thing so if you're looking at it as a finance play you really got to rule the total cost with your your local taxes in on the whole thing at which point the planeswalkers are something like 30 to 35 dollars anyway 
and then minus fees and and shipping and time spent and whatever you really kind of be want to want to be selling these planeswalkers in the 40 to 50 dollars each to really make it worth your while and, and sorry i just want to point out that that uh is a good point uh, a good subtext here is that it's important for our listeners to remember that you will occasionally hear personalities talk about selling product, making money, what have you. But a lot of times their venues for doing that are different than yours. They have contacts, they have channels that they're used to using that will give them money. They're they're either working for a vendor or associated with a vendor they can move product to. So always take it with a grain of salt when you see somebody talking about some of the sales they're making. Um, you know, unless it's another guy doing it from his armchair. Uh, you know, if anyone was involved with the store they might be working contacts that you can't have and also be willing to accept smaller margins that are worth it for your time. Sure. The, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, one of the promises of this release was that it was going to be better for international uh, players and, and vendors because you could order online direct from eBay and that was supposed to be better than the four or five GPs out of the 11, 12 or 13, can't remember exactly how many it was, where Channel Fireball had the first Mythic Edition available in the fall into the end of December. Now, as it turns out, reports from most of Europe and Japan and so forth, with shipping costs um, and then duties and other import fees, it ended up being like plus 100, plus 120, plus $140 over the 250 to actually get it into the country. So there's actually going to be a big gaping hole here because I think a lot of Europe's going to hold off on ordering it. And people that sneak units in the back door into Europe might have a pretty good uh, tunnel they can drive the profits through. So be interesting to see how much of that goes on, where especially if somebody put in an order for 25 units and can't unload them right away because the market doesn't seem to be um, all, all that hot on the product, uh, there should be some international distribution opportunities that might work out. And I have seen some units selling on eBay for 300 350 and that's pretty strange when you can order it direct from Hasbro for 250 right? But it's not strange if you realize that if they order it secondhand from somebody else, you know, I put up a listing or something, and I offer to sell it for, when all is said and done, about 50 less than it would be after all the fees and stuff from Hasbro, which are automatically calculated by eBay in that instance. But you're overseas and you order it through a shipping partner that initially the sale lands at a shipping distribution center in the U.S. is going to dodge a bunch of those fees. And that explains why some people have been paying like 300 to 350 for these boxes online. Although I'm, I'm assuming that some people are also just dumb. Well, <laughs> may not have realized it didn't sell out when the first listing disappeared. I have to imagine that like. Some portion of these sales have got to be from that, right? You know, it's it's always startling to me to see how bad the decisions of people can be at times, even when there's so much available information. Uh, so that's certainly part of it. Yeah, and you know, I wonder if if the sales in Europe slowed down too because they, you know, they also saw what was happening, and so it's lowering demand over there, and maybe they're not going to put as much work in. They're not going to tolerate higher shipping costs. Uh, and import fees, duties, so forth, if they can see that it's not moving that hot in America either, they might be thinking they can score some copies uh, when they make it over here for a GP, or maybe they they think the Channel Fireball will end up with some. So uh, that might slow down their buying behavior too if they feel like there's not a, a need to get them now. Right. And so, and yet, there is yet another angle 
So one of the other things that's being reported is that people are getting more than they ordered. So, and, and then again, you now need to ask yourself, is this, you know, you want to put your conspiracy theory hat on and say that Wizards is just trying to get the product out the door and they don't care. And they're trying to drive some viral hype so that people will be like, oh, this guy ordered one and he got two. This guy ordered two and he got four. This guy on the MGG price forums on the Discord today reported that he ordered two and got 25. What? Yeah. 25? And so he just took them down to it. Actually, it wasn't. It's not one of it's not one of the pro traders. One of the pro traders reported it from their LGS. So <clears throat> guy walked in with 25 units, showed them that he had only ordered two and sold them all of the excess. And he and he took 150 apiece. He, so if a lot of that kind of nonsense went on, and let's assume that some small percentage of the orders were at least doubled, probably getting 25 instead of two is fairly rare. Um, that still means that there's a lot of cheap product floating around in the market where if you're that guy, you're going to unload at 150. Maybe you're going to unload on eBay at 200. You can undercut the product while it's still being sold, which is even going to further slow sales and undercut the prices on the singles. It is it something I find the claim that that, that story is a little tough to swallow. Uh, I mean, 25 is a reputable little... member. No, I believe the story. It came from a reputable member of the discord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. Sure. Even if you take that as, as real, I can't imagine there was too much of that, right? Like that's how well, do you, how do well, you for instance, send 25? So I knew that my father ordered ahead of me. I've only I've only ordered uh, one box so far. That's all I was willing to pull the trigger on, given all of these crazy circumstances. Um, but now I'm wondering whether my one is going to get sent out as a case instead of a box, meaning I'm going to get a, a buy one, get one free. So I asked my father what happened, like, did his box show up? Because he's in Ohio. That's just next door from Pennsylvania. They're probably already landed. Sure enough, he got a, he got a box yesterday from Hasbro. Then he got two today. So he contacted me and said, hey, did you order yours? And I'm like, I did, but it was just last night. So I don't think you should have it yet. So now he's wondering, he's got to get home still. He's still at work. But he's wondering whether he got six instead of four. (laughs) Well, apparently I was supposed to have ordered these, I guess. Maybe I should just fire an order off and see what the hell I end up with. Well, when, and when you start saying that aloud, you start wondering whether they're doing this on purpose so that people get a little more excited. Yeah. The whole thing messy 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 that is it's i mean it's one thing to send out a couple box hoppers to get people jazzed but like sending several extra boxes of this is quite a push but then again you know somebody did the who was it one of them did the math saffron or someone and they were what did they make like uh 1.3 million dollars or something like that in the first hour or so uh, and that's with them not selling through the inventory, of course, um, you know, just selling part of it. So, you know, if you're wizards, it's not hard. To, and this is a product that virtually has no overhead. Uh, you know, you have to pay the printer to run it when it's you're probably paying what, a couple dollars a card, if that. And it's on the high end uh, would not cost them yeah, much so it, relative to their profits to throw a couple hundred or even a couple really a couple thousand extra out there to people uh, for free. So. So here's the thing. The fixed cost on short run products is going to be higher per card printed than it is with the, you know, a, a fall standard set. Of course. Um, because you have to do a lot of the same things. But in this, and in this case, they have custom packaging, which they've already worked out last time. So some of the like 
product design costs are being mitigated this time around. Um, but short run press is going to be more expensive for them than bigger orders. This is a $5 million project all told. If they sell, if there are in fact 19,000 units and they all sell at $250 a piece, that's $4 million. $750,000 and then the, subtract the eBay fees. I mean, e- eBay gets half a million dollars out of this deal if they all sell there. Um, and then, you know, their costs over top of that. So I would guess like profits are somewhere in the neighborhood of, and shipping was free, keep in mind. So I would, I would accept overseas. Um, so I would imagine that there's something like 1.5 to 2 million in profit. If I had to guess just off the top of my head, but I'd want to run some numbers to get a little more certain about it. Um, it's a solid project. The pro the but there is a pr- with these premium products, you really want them to sell out, and it it's not a huge deal if it takes two weeks to sell out instead of two days, because it doesn't necessarily impact the third version, which I'm almost certain we're getting with War of the Spark, whereby one of the reasons I think that these were medium planeswalkers. And for the record, I calculate that these planeswalkers are about 15 to 20% less value overall versus the first edition. So that's that's how I've been framing my analysis of whether to go in on it. Um, but one of the things that I think ensured that the middle set was a little worse, or was the worst of the three, is that in the third set, War of the Spark, this is all the planeswalkers ganging up on Nicol Bolas and his team of planeswalkers. It's like the Avengers assemble versus you know, Thanos and his team or whatever. And so I suspect we're going to get a Nicol Bolas. We're going to get a Jace. We're going to get maybe Ugin um, and Chandra and Gideon and, you know, whoever. So the, if that set is as good as I think it will be, and I think it will be, um, then, you know, it's going to sell like the first one. It might very well sell out on day one if it's that good, especially if they let people order more than two units at a time. Um, but I'm trying to track down better information about how widespread the multi-orders are, because if they're very widespread, it would certainly influence whether I'd be willing to throw some more money at this. I mean, it is, it does make me kind of wonder, like, you know, I'm in New York, I'm very close too. Maybe I should order them, order a pair, see what comes in the mail. And if it's only to return them (laughs) and then, and then order again. They are return these. Like, imagine, you know, what if it costs me 10 bucks to return them? Is it worth ordering, canceling, ordering, canceling? I mean, if I, what if I order four different pairs of them and then they accidentally send me, you know, quote unquote, accidentally send me two or three extra? I mean, I paid 40 bucks to get a bunch extra. See, my theory is that the warehouse, that, but. my theory is that the cases have two boxes and the warehouse was counting cases as though they were boxes. Hmm. And so double, that's where the doublings came from. Now, where did the 25 instead of two come from? Probably by somebody looking at the wrong like row on a spreadsheet. Yeah, that's questionable. The order before that guy's was 25. And when he, the guy glances over, he's like, how much is this one? Uh, and he saw 25 and said when he was supposed to be looking at row below it too. That would be my guess. So either way, I don't think you can really lean into it. Like they're going to either someone has already had a word with the warehouse and they've got their shit on straight or, you know, they were doing it for virality, um, in which case you're not going to do that consistently. You're just going to do it to get the word out there. And once the word lands, then you're just going to go back to doing it normally. Right. There's no need to do it again. Yeah. So the whole thing is a huge, crazy mess. Now, 
take a big step back. These are still $25 to $30 Masterpiece Planeswalkers. They are going to experience, I would guess, relatively low demand in the short term. Some people have had some success selling singles. Others have gotten zero bids whatsoever on eBay. Quite a few of them, actually. And I, and the buy list have not weighed in yet, which is, a, to me, a huge warning sign. These cards are out. In most normal circumstances, the buy list would already have up what they want to pay on them. But until it sells out, they don't seem willing to wade into the water. So you can't sell them to see uh, Abu. You can't sell them to Card Kingdom. Nobody wants these yet until they see that they can't get them anymore. Well, if you're ABU or whoever, why would you even put a buy list number up at this point? I mean, you might put it up at like 10% of the value or, you know, 30%. But if they're still available at retail in such high quantities, you know, if I'm any of these stores, I'm not interested in in putting out a bounty on them. Right. And that's the thing is that I think there is a tipping point. Like, I think if they sell it out, whether it takes five more days or five more weeks, Past the point where it sells out, it is in fact sold out and there will never be any more. And we we now, knowing that there's 19,000, you know, if you're only 50% sold out, it's a little embarrassing. But in two years, those cards will still be very rare. That, that's just the reality. Because a lot of, um, you know, a lot of this product will go into the attrition void and never come back out again. Lots of people told us in, in the Discord, yeah, I bought a couple of these for myself and I'm just going to stash them away or I'm putting them in cubes or blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going to sell a few of the singles off, whatever. But, you know, a majority of this product will not be resold. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. You know, we're 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 this is quite a uh, an event uh, from top to bottom. Right. In in all regards. And it is certainly not appealing at the moment to be buying into this, uh, especially if you're looking to make a profit. Uh, there's just so many on the market. You're not going to be able to beat the MSRP or get better prices than the MSRP. However, however, there's still going to be demand for this. People still want to play with these cards. And even if there's no, you know, tier one standard staple plus heavy EDH demand type card uh, plus modern demand Planeswalker, there's still demand for these cards. They're still played. People still like them just a little differently. Uh, and there's not that many more, right? Like 20,000 is about what we thought there was for the last one. It's just a little more obvious how many there are. So as bad as this looks as a buyer right now, I do agree with what seemingly where you were going with it is that it gets a lot better when you start to consider on a six, well, maybe six months is a little short, but a one to two year timeline where the people who want them have finally had a chance to pick them up, not at 250, but maybe they're snagging them at 200 or 220 or what have you. Um, and then later on down the road, we kind of forget the debacle or at least it's the, the this all, this event has lost its impact on the card prices and we're just back to the cards costing what you would expect for a run like this. So there could be a lot of uh, opportunity here if you hold off a month or two and see what the prices look like. Uh, And if you can get down, you know, I would say below 200, it's probably a good buy. Well, and there's the chance for something like Kaya or Zava Serper to be better than people think it is at some point. Like people are talking about it in Legacy Vintage. I, do, I don't rely on anything from those formats to move card prices these days. But if 
if a card, one of those planeswalkers ends up being better than people thought. Like I would argue that Teferi was known to be good, but it wasn't, ex- didn't, people didn't fully understand like just how much of a staple it was in the late fall. Um, it was obvious, but now it's entrenched. And so there's, there's some potential there. Uh, there's also the other factor, which is, you know, I've talked about in the past that I predicted that when the second one came out, people would want the first. Well, somebody bought one of the first ones for like $575 from me the other day. And I asked, did did you buy this because you also bought the other one? They said, yeah, I bought the other one. I'm collecting the whole set. So, you know, that's a truism. And that's going to be true for a bunch of collectors. So when the third one comes out, people are going to want the first and the second. And I suspect that the first is going to hold its value a lot better than the second. But that doesn't mean the second. The second is probably far, far from being a $600 set, even if it sells out. But it could be a $350, $375, $400, set, based on how some of the singles have been selling for some of the people that have managed to unload them. Um, I'm a little concerned about people getting multi-orders, because when you could only get one or two of these your odds of wanting to sell into the market were a lot lower. If people that ordered one got two, two got four, two occasionally got 25, then as I said, there's going to be a lot more of this floating around um, that didn't come from primary demand. So I think net-net, you haven't bought any, right? Nope. And I've bought one. I'll probably get four to six when all is said and done as they get a little closer to selling out. Um. I'm a little suspicious that they might not list the last four or 5,000 on eBay. They might look for another out for them. If that ends up being at GPs and it's spread out over a period of time, that, I think that's actually good for the set. Um, if it languishes on eBay for a long time, that's worse. And I think it will, rep- it will repress prices until it is finally known to be sold out. The thing about the GPs is by staggering it out you know, once a week or once every couple of weeks over the course of a few months, the market has a much easier time absorbing the additional inventory. And it ends up kind of having a positive impact on the singles price movement. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out over the next week or two and maybe revisit. But um, my net net on it is still, if you can't move super fast and you don't have great outs, you can either sit this one out and look for better opportunities, or you can dip your toe in the water and see if you either get A, lucky, or B, settle in for 6, 12, 18 month hold. Well, that I might end up being the catch here, uh, or, or should I say the lesson is that ultimately your best bet may just be to stay away and put your money someplace where the returns are better. Right, like that's that's still a completely valid choice, regardless of what these do. Um, so I think I think it's probably a, a probably fine to look for a really good en- look for a decent entry price if you want some. Uh, and if you're just doing it to spec on, maybe be a little bit more discerning with what prices you're looking to pay. Yeah, and and it could end up that scooping some of these singles, if the, if the market gets flooded with singles, then scooping singles um, below the or very close to what the price they were in the box might be the way to go. Because the demand for Domery is likely and and Kaya, if they don't really do much outside of occasional play and standard or something, is going to be significantly lower than the the over the long term demand for. Karn Cyan of Urza and Dak Vaden, you know, have see Eternal and 
you know, in, in Kern's uh, case, uh, modern affinity play, um, and DAC, of course, in Cube and, and Legacy and Vintage, um, you might want to just look to scoop those before they start to climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, that, that, that also might be the play. Um, now that you mention it, and I remember thinking about this with the other one, uh, and you bring it to the forefront again, that the singles are, are also very well positioned, especially because Domery looks pretty mediocre outside of standard and even in standard, who knows if you're going to play them. Uh, and that might, we might run into that with a couple of the other walkers. So I being the ones that we know are interesting, Dak Faden, probably Karn. Uh, some of the other ones might be a better choice to, uh, you know, you wait about two months for those to really, uh, or maybe two or three weeks for the, to really flood the market and then start grabbing the singles that you think are going to give you the best returns. I don't hate. I don't. Yeah, hate the thing is that like people, people that mostly play constructed might have been underwhelmed by cards like Soren Markov and and Tamio the Moon Sage, but the reality is that those are significantly popular EDH planes. Oh yeah, Soren especially. Uh, so you know they'll they'll get they will get there. They were they're all in the five six seven eight thousand copies in, on EDH rec kind of range that would normally signal um you know a buying opportunity mm-hmm. the but the play i mentioned earlier may also be the play which is to just go ahead and try to sell the singles before you actually order any mm-hmm. like have some in your cart on ebay try to fill it an order get rid of enough singles at a price you know put them up at prices that you think would make you the margin that you want to get and if you move it through whatever network you've got whether it's a facebook group or you know you're located in europe or whatever and then you can place your order and pull the trigger you know, your risk is very low. Just make sure that you know, understand that you let the people you're selling to know that you're going to have a, a couple of day holding time uh, or handling time and you should be good to go. That one, that makes me a little uncomfortable because there is some risk there for people who are not as comfortable with this whole process maybe. Uh, so I'm I'm not eager to tell people they should do that, but I respect it as a strategy overall. Well, what but what you can say is... I'm taking I'm sub- taking a subscription to a box. You can even tell people you're going to buy it. And this is what I want to get for the individual planeswalkers and see if people will subscribe to the box. Once it fills, you can you can say that that then activates. Well, the yeah, yeah. There are strategies. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways to phrase it. Yeah, there's, there's strategies to, to work around that. You can also like organize a draft with your friends and pre-subscribe that. Buy a box and, you know, get one of the walkers for free or something. Yeah, I, I, it's all, it's all valid, right? I, have, I think these are all uh, definitely effective ways to move the product. I guess I just want to be a little bit of a vo- uh, cautionary voice for our listeners. Who I just don't want them to get in over their head. Not that this won't can't be effective. It's just carries slightly more risk than you know some of the other techniques might. Because now you're like, if they you sell some, but you don't end up buying the ones you wanted or you owe people copies for cheaper than you can suddenly get them for because you missed the buying opportunity you know there's a little bit of room for that yeah and don't yeah don't trip over your own feet <laughs> do do this get in there while the getting is good if you want to try it I, I actually may just post something on twitter and attempt to subscribe a box just to see if it happens are you going to do it you know at it, what like a five percent profit margin or something no, I'll, I'll post it at whatever market is for the Planeswalkers, assuming that that adds up to a reasonable margin. Otherwise, why even bother? Um, but it'll be an interesting experiment because the people that are claiming they can out singles with ease, you know, 
could have special circumstances and it's worth testing whether those are real. Yeah. I, I suspect that I'm always very dubious when people talk about getting great prices on cards, great prices for cards that otherwise appear difficult for the average person to acquire. Uh, I guess I don't doubt entirely that they got them, but I don't see it as something that's obtainable for most people. Um, it really just seems like people just kind of tooting their own horn. Like, okay, that's great that you have a connection with a vendor, but most people don't have that. So like, it's great, I guess. All right. So that's basically segment yeah. four part or a big yeah, part so of was. it. Um, <laughs> you want to move us back to the top of the order and let us know what else we got on. Yeah, the sure. This so this week we have a, uh, a show in, uh, I guess four in three and a half parts uh segment one or prelude we're gonna spend uh 40 minutes <laughs> talking about the new mythic editions and how much of a debacle those have been uh then segment one the actual start of the cast is uh, our top movers where we'll look at the cards that have risen the most in price over the last week segment two is our cards to watch those are cards james and i will think think may rise at, uh, in price in the future and segment three which will end our show this week because uh, there is no topic of the week remember we just had a prelude uh is our metagame we can review we have star city indianapolis was the first foray into ravnica legion standard there was also a modern opening classic that occurred this weekend at the same indianapolis event there's also a bunch of 5-0 lists hanging around so we're going to kind of bounce around and look at some of the lists out there uh some real interesting stuff uh in the wings this week we're going to st- uh Sorry, let me let me interrupt. We we actually do have another segment for topic of the week. The trophy gate coverage oh, changes. Should at least yeah, I mean on. that's fine. Yep, we can do that. Uh, All, right. All right, so let's jump in on our our top movers this week. Uh, first on the list, we've got Woodland Bellower out of uh, Magic Origins foils going from seven fifty to twelve fifty for about a sixty seven percent gain. This is on the back of uh, general EDH play, but specifically Vanifar lists. Um, can use this in some of their more value-oriented builds. Origins was not a super uh, high sales set as a summer set, so not super surprising to see foil mythics that are uh, suddenly in slightly more demand than before um, showing a little bit. Yeah, uh, that's a cool card in that list. Um, I like it. A good value engine, pretty reasonable. I don't know if I love the body. A 6.5 is kind of underwhelming, but it's good enough. That just the fact that it goes and tutors more creatures is probably the relevant part. Um, following on the heels of that is Biogenic Ooze. This one out of Ravnica, a Legion, so a newer card. Uh, Biogenic Ooze, 6 to 11, 50-year show. We are seeing it show up in standard lists um, alongside Hydroid Crisis at times. So Hydroid Crisis is definitely the, the star of the show, but Biogenic Ooze has been popping up as just a value engine in green decks. Uh, you know, it's the first weekend. I don't love... I love. You know what I love? I love selling these if you have them. Uh, because everything can't hold a good price tag. We've already seen Hydrate Crisis do a lot. I don't want to get hung up on Biogenic Ooze if it ends up as only a one or two of in the future. If that. Yeah, so I mean, there are multiple like Saltai mid-range lists that have run the card, but others have already cut the card. Um, so it could be that the format is already moving beyond it. Uh I've seen one ofs, two ofs, three ofs, and four ofs. I know uh, Saffron Olive ran a list that he uh, put on YouTube uh, on his channel where he was running it as a four of and did pretty well. Um, so that price, and there was early rounds 
um, at the Star City this weekend where people were running the card as well. So I like selling it, um, especially if you got in real low, um, because it's not clear whether it lands as the optimal configuration for the green decks in the format. Yeah. After that, Massacre Worm um, out of Mirrodin Besieged, non-foils, 13 to 25. Uh, showing up in, I mean, it's a very, it's a very good EDH card. We know that uh, it's really great to slam that into play and either kill everyone on the spot or let it hang around in play and threaten to drain people out as people keep playing creatures. Um, but we've got some reference of it showing up in a modern deck recently, too. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's like a four-color Eldritch Evolution list um, that 5-0'd a league as recently as January 25th. Birds of Paradise, Noble Hire, Coiling Oracle, Nest Invader, Scavenging Ooze, Eternal Witness, Plague Crafter, Tireless Tracker. Probably the highlight here is Abyssal Persecutors. That's the 6-6 six, six Flying Trample for two and two black. You can't win the game and your opponents can't lose the game. Um, Glenelendra Archmage, Hostage Taker, Kalidus, Two Ninja of the Deep Hours, Scarab God, and a Massacre Worm. And then Fatal Pushes, Assassin's Trophy, Negates, and Eldritch Evolution as a four of. Um, I'm surprised there's no Vanifar in this list because this is like a stack of one, two, three, four, five, six creatures with Massacre Worm at the top end. Looks like Vanifar slots right in. Um, but regardless, the, the real key here is that Massacre Worm has never seen a reprint. It's from Mirrodin Besieged. And both the foils and the non-foils are on the move um, between EDH and this modern list demand. Yeah, this seems like the type of card that you could see pop up um, in a commander product as a non-foil. This is very commander pro- commander producty to me. Uh, it's also the type of card I could see in a master set at a mythic slot, sort of like in the Elder Dragon type slot that we saw in uh, modern masters. So. Uh, I guess I'm more comfortable having foils here than non-foils because it, it, you don't have to worry about the EDH reprint, the commander reprint. However, foils yep. on this are already pretty outrageous, I think. Uh, I didn't pull it up, but they've got to be 50 or 60 bucks. So I don't know if you're really getting anything out of that anyways. The takeaway here is probably if you have a bunch of these sitting around for whatever reason, it's likely a good time to sell it. Um, that's a pretty good price increase. And it's hard for EDH cards to be really much higher than 20 or $30 for non-foil cards, especially ones of this nature, uh, just because there's kind of a limit to how much people are willing to play, pay for utility creatures like this. Um, you know, even doubling season at its peak before it was reprinted a couple times wasn't was like $40, I think. And that was a the banner card of EDH essentially. So yeah, my takeaway here is you should probably sell your non-foils. Yeah. Uh, next on the list, we've got Blood Artist Foils out of Eternal Masters going from four to eight for a double up. Eh, probably going to make a couple of bucks on those if you got them lying around. Not a huge deal one way or the other, but that's almost certainly on the back of uh, Tessia EDH demand. Uh, Tessia Karlov looking like one of the top two commanders to come out of Ravnica Allegiance. Yeah, I actually uh, was talking about this card. It was just like a week or two ago, right, that I was referencing. Uh, it wasn't last week. Oh, no. Yeah, last week I was saying the foils for Zulaport Cutthroat yep. were a good pick out of Battle for Zenikar, so very similar effect yep. um, because of Tezia. And it looks like uh, looks like they are. <laughs> um, then Hydroid Crisis, right? Like that's kind of the big – I would call this the story of, of Ravnica Legion so far. This weekend, all said and done, we'll get into this a little bit more 
in segment three, but Ravnica Legion's kind of a little quieter on the standard front than we might have people might have expected. Um, but Hydroid Crace is definitely the breakout mythic so far of Ravnica Allegiance, I would say. Uh, it's you know it released to not a lot of fanfare during the spoiler season, uh, but so far it appears to be the card that has seen the most play, gathered the most attention. Uh, Hydroid Crisis is the X blue green that generates uh, uh, body and life and cards, so it kind of just does it all for you. Um, and again, we're looking at prices 15 to 30 for the non-foils. Uh, and to me, that's a hard sell because these were not being played as like a four of in multiple lists. They were like, they were, they were popular, but they were scattered. Yeah. And some people got play sets on eBay, like at, for 32 bucks a play set. So, yeah. you know, polite golf claps if you got in on that early. Um, I mentioned this last week, but I missed two things about the text on this card. One that only that the power and toughness are not half of X, where the casting cost is X blue green. Um, but the other part is that it's a the the drawing of the cards and the getting the life equal to half X is on cast, not resolution. So it doesn't matter if they counter it, you still mm-hmm. get that stuff. So yeah. it's like an Eldrazi in that it's way. It's a it's a it's a powerful card, and you know I I kind of glazed over it during spoiler season, and I blame that on the fact that. It's been forever since some cards have been good and standard. So I'm just so used to the standard cards being bad. Even when I see a Simic card that I I think is cool and could be good, I kind of write it off because I've I've gotten burned so many times on wanting them to be good. And now I'm just like, oh, there's never going to be a good one. So this can't be it. Even though it looks good, it's just me and my dumb brain who wants it to be good. Um, Which is the same thing I thought when I saw Eternal or Wilderness Reclamation. (laughs) So even crazier, this card has already 5-0'd a Modern League. There's a list that, that yeah. was released today. Three Jace the Mind Sculptor, three Teferi Hero of Dominaria, four Arbor Elf, three Corsair of Crufix, two Eternal Witness, a Hydroid Crassus, a Jace Friends Prodigy, Supreme Verdict, two Time Warp, four Angel Song, which is a white cyclable uh, fog, four Cryptic Command, one Nexus of Fate, two Remand, two Fertile Grand, two Search for Azkanta, and four Utopia Sprawl. This looks very similar to the Bant Nexus of Fate Wilderness Reclamation deck I was pulling together, except it looks like Wilderness Reclamation got cut. <laughs> and instead, you, you've got Hydroid Crosses. Yeah, that's a, that was a wild list. I don't know. It's interesting that that would see play in Modern. I wouldn't expect it to be good enough. Um, or I, I guess I would expect there to be something else to kind of fill that slot. Uh, but it is pretty good at just being a general overall value engine. So, uh, I mean, if it works, it works. It's kind of cool that that would, would make it that far. Yeah, it's got me very curious. I, I'm bouncing around about whether I'm going to play uh, this other list that I saw that was also crazy, um, which is a... I was looking at Saltai Spells, because one of the things about Wilderness Reclamation is you really want to be playing at instant speed out of your hand or off the board because you want to use that man on your opponent's turn and really like take two turns for every one turn they take. Um, so, you know, some of the things I was looking at where I'm using Planeswalkers and stuff in Bant or Saltai Shells were cool, but it's it's unfortunate that you can't really pour mana into the Planeswalkers on your opponent's turn. So I started looking at Saltai Spells, and the thing that I missed was that there's this little card called Mystical Teachings. Um, mm-hmm. It has done lots of work in the past in constructed formats, but people have largely forgotten. was recently reprinted in Modern Masters 2017 as a common. Mystical Teachings is an instant for three and a blue. says, search your library for an instant card or a card with flash, reveal it, and put it into your hand, then shelf your library. And it has flashback five and a black. 
So somebody pulled together a list with three Snapcaster Mation, three Wilderness Reclamation, and 29 instants. Abrupt Decay, Assassin's Trophy, Blue Sun Zenith, Four Cryptic Command, Devour Flesh, Fatal Push, Growth Spiral. And this is there are at least three different builds in Modern I've seen 5-0 this week with four copies of Growth Spiral. Um, yeah, that card being an instant is real relevant because now you can play it uh, if your opponent, you can hold up like remand or something. Yeah. And then if they don't play it, you can do that. Yeah. Well, and this is, and the other thing is that I, I'm looking at uh, Amulet of Vigor builds where you have Wilderness Reclamation and Amulet of Vigor with the uh, Bounce Lands. So you're putting Bounce Lands into play, you're putting extra ones into play, you're tapping for tons of mana, and then once you get them all settled on the battlefield, you're tapping that mana on your opponent's turn and doing stuff. Like maybe you're pumping up a walking blister or something and pouring a bunch of mana into it. And I'm trying to figure out ju- they're really greedy lists because you have the, like the engine for um, uh, Amulet of Vigor list is like 20 cards already just to get like, cause you want your Asuzas, you want primeval Titans, you want amulets of vigor and you probably want growth spirals and some other stuff um, like explorers and what have you. So it takes up like half your deck just to fit that engine in. And then the question is, can you squeeze some other stuff in that's any better than the existing amulet Titan list? And the answer is probably no, but I'm certainly having fun exploring it. Um, Look, but this list is cool. List. This list with the 29 instants, the only kill conditions in here are Snapcaster Mages and Creeping Tarpits. Uh, or, sorry, and the one Nexus of Fate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that yeah, you're, that you're tutoring up with repeatedly with Mystic Teachings once you get enough once you get enough mana. Yeah, any of our listeners who have been playing Magic for more than a couple of years should be familiar with Teachings. That's been a long-standing strategy ever since the card was printed. It has never really been huge in Modern, not that people have not tried over and over and over again. Uh, and it's... I don't know if it'll ever really be good enough in Modern. It is kind of expensive, but it is a powerful effect. And every time they print more instants, it gets, does get more interesting. And Wilderness Reclamation is a fascinating card to pair with it. Um, the, the thing that really, like seems odd to me that I haven't done in any of my wilderness reclamation builds is that there's no mana acceleration other than the grow spirals. So I've in all of my lists I've got Noble Hierarchs or Birds of Paradise or Lanawar Elves at least, or maybe I, I tried Kiora's follower in some lists because that lets you untap permanence. Um for blue green you get a two two body that can untap permanent permanence, which can be really good with the bounce lands. Um I'm surprised to see a list where the only acceleration is growth spiral. Uh, I mean, Mystical Teachings decks never played a ramp game. Uh, Wilderness Reclamation. Yeah, I mean, that that does want you to put more lands in the play, right? Like, that's part of the game plan. But I could see the problem with ramp decks is there's always a problem that if you draw them at the wrong time, right? They're very good early, but very bad late. And if you draw the wrong half of your deck, it's a problem. So Wilderness Reclamation sort of counterintuitively may be actually uh, a way to play a ramp deck that doesn't require the ramp. Um, you get to play normal magic cards otherwise. And then Wilderness Reclamation is just a one card, double your mana type of thing. And then you can focus the rest of your deck on cards that sort of play at instant speed and uh, are a way to function without, you know, as a normal magic deck. So basically you play normal magic up until you draw Wilderness Reclamation and then suddenly you're taking a time walk every single turn. Uh, so maybe that's the way that that's supposed to go. I don't know for sure. I'm not the brewer. What I do know is that if you're going to play at GP Toronto, you need to have some damage store balance in your deck. 
Well, it's funny you mention that because Restore Balance finally got there uh, in the capable hands of Sean McLaren, who's been messing around with various um, Electro Dominance decks uh, on his stream recently. And he 5-0'd, I guess this is either yesterday or today, with Jace the Mind Sculptor, four Greater Gargadon, four Ancestral Vision, four Restore Balance, four Serum Visions, four Sleight of Hand, four Electro Dominance, two Lightning Bolt, four Opt, two Remand, a Tormod's Crypt, four As Foretold, and a Blood Moon. Um, so I suspect that the blue red, uh, versions of that are more cycling, uh, based and have living in, sorry, I guess, so I guess it's, uh, Grixis. Um, the Grixis decks have been 5-0ing more often, but it's nice to see that the, uh, Jeskai version looks tunable at the very least. That is a really odd build because Restore Balance wants you to have, like, you know, no cards in your hand, and he's playing Restore Balance and all of the, or Essential uh, Vision and all these other sort of card draw effects. So that was a curious build, but I mean, I'm not claiming to know more than Sean does. He's a very capable Magic player. Uh, the greater, it looked like he was leaning on the greater Gargadon pretty hard at the very least. I will say that. Uh, certainly interesting what paths this could open up, though. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to see what Electro Dominance brings, um, and not just because I want to make money on my restore balances it is a cool card as well one of the other cards i've been looking at for this kind of build and for uh my wilderness reclamation builds is i want low cast and cost planeswalkers so the blue green uh nissa um has showed up in some earlier um lists prior to wilderness reclamation so i've been experimenting with that i've also been looking at gideon of the trials because he can come down early, and once you start taking extra turns, he's getting in there as an attacker over and over again. And you can always like fall back on his emblem um, to force them to deal with him uh, if they ever get to take another turn. The other card I've been playing around with is Silence, which is generally just not even close to good enough for, in modern, right? But it's a one-mana instant that says your opponent ca- can't cast any spells. So if you cast it in their upkeep, and they don't have a bunch of instant speed action they want to do that turn, you could just steal a turn. <laughs> and and then you're uh, snap you're snapping that back <laughs> in that deck and things could get nasty if things fall the right way now listen i gotta tell you you're gonna lose you you are i think damaging your credibility if you are trying to sell silence to our listeners and i say this as somebody who has tried to make silence work and failed miserably and feel like i touched a, a hot stove more than once yeah so, I, I you know i full i fully agree the, and certainly not pr- proposing it as a spec by any means. Um, we're talking about my jank modern fantasies here, not cards that are actually good and are going to get anywhere. Um, okay. Just so long as we're clear. Yeah, yeah. But in theory, <laughs> that one of the problems with... Uh, one of the nice things about Wilderness Reclamation is because you're doubling up on your mana, you can do weird things on their turn. Like, you could, if you have a hand that's like Silence, Remand, and Cryptic Command, and you just drop Wilderness Reclamation then your opponent's turn is they're going nowhere. <laughs> it, depending on the kind of deck, like if you're playing against something like Tron, you can go ahead and silence in their upkeep. What are they going to do? They don't have any Well, sh- sure. My, and, my, and, and if you're playing against like uh, a control deck or something and they want to just sit back on their counter spell, you can hold up your remand and cryptic. They do nothing. Okay, you can cast Grow Spiral at the end of your turn. They decide to try to go ahead and do something in response. You go ahead and remand that put it back in their hand and, and untap and then take a turn because you're going to do Nexus of Fate or whatever. So yeah. 
I'm not going to be one the one to solve this, but I'm having trouble trying to figure out the puzzle. I'm certainly convinced Wilderness Reclamation is going to show up in Modern and do some serious, serious work. And my figuring out the builds ahead of the curve is what makes it fun. Yeah, my expectation is that the best rec- Wilderness Reclamation decks will be the ones that just play essentially normal magic. Um, because trying to do something that only works when you have Wilderness Reclamation on the table is a surefire way to build garbage. Sure. Also, saying this is somebody who has built those decks many, many times. Um, and then you never draw the card. Right, exactly, exactly. That's that's how you get yourself in the trouble. You know, the one in ten games, you're in magical Christmas land and you feel like a genius, but the other ones, your deck doesn't do anything because it depends on having this card in play. If you're the right Wilderness Reclamation decks, and it is unfortunate because God only knows how much I want to play stupid decks, is just normal magic that then gets to play magic twice as hard when it manages to resolve the enchantment, which is not nearly as exciting as getting to play cards like Silence or whatever other nonsense you dream up. Uh, but, you know, that's the way magic works, unfortunately. Uh, of all the lists I've pulled together for Reclamation, the one that seems the most reasonable <laughs> is just Bant Control. Yeah. Where if you and you have three copies of Wilderness Reclamation that re- like really drive it home if it lands. Yeah. Um, OK, so that was uh, our fourth card that moved in price this week. Right. Let me blow. Let me blow through this. Hydro stuff. Crisis. Knight's, <laughs> Knight's Whisper from fifth done. Foils moving from 14 to 30. Hasn't seen a reprint in a while um, and is a, a popular card uh, casual in EDH. Ristic Circle from Prophecy um, sees some play in EDH as well. Foils going from 3 to 9 or so. Um, I wouldn't want to be super deep there. Expropriate Foils going, in theory, from $85 to $235 for 176% gain. I think you take that with a serious grain of salt. Um, I sold most of mine in the 60 to 80 range, I think, with an entry in the 20 to $25 range. It was a pick of ours quite a ways back. Um, glad that worked out for everybody. I would suspect that this lands in the 80 to 120 range until the inevitable reprint, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there you're never going to get $250 or whatever it is for these cards. Uh, yeah, 235 forget it. Like, no one's going to pay that because why would you ever pay that much money for a card that you know could be reprinted again? Right? It's not like this is uh, an old foil that's guaranteed never to show up again. You're just going to be like, no, I'm, I might pay 110 or 120 but after that, forget it. Like, I'll just wait for them to put it in whatever product it is they're going to reprint it in. Yeah, and they will reprint this card in the next couple of years, I feel fairly confident. Oh, the, yeah, um, yeah. The, and probably not in the commander decks, because even the non-foils are too expensive at this point. Um, so it probably shows up in a master-style product. Uh, could also be a box type or a topper type situation. The I did bid. I think there was a Japanese foil version because Conspiracy Take the Crown was printed in Japanese uh, on eBay for about one twenty or something. I tabled one hundred five, and then while that was being ignored, uh, it just sold at one twenty. Yeah. Um. Uh, like the day after this movement. So. Um really aren't very many of these foils lying around and the thing is like the the attrition that we talk about is most prevalent in edh because of how many edh decks edh players have and expropriate being good in pretty much every blue deck means that a lot of these foils have gone into cubes and edh decks never to return right and especially if you have an original foil expropriate why you know you're only going to get rid of that if you sell your entire collection 
you're unlikely so, to you know pull that out and get rid of it for whatever reason. I also right. say this is somebody with a pile of original foils in various binders in decks that I do not bother to try and manage here and there. I just buy them, I stick them in decks, and they go up, they go down, whatever. I'm not monkeying with it. It's not worth my time. So, finishing up the list. Hornet Queen from Magic 2015, another prominent EDH creature um, that's good in Vanifar. Foils going from 650 to 1950. I've actually got a, several of these sitting around that I've had for, like, well, since around probably six months after Magic 2015. So definitely a long-term spec, but I'm pretty sure I picked them up in the like 3 to $5 range, including some Japanese foils. So those are going to pay off just fine. Yeah, I like uh, the foil Hornet Queens. I've liked them for a while. I'm sure I talked about them at some point somewhere, uh, but this is a pretty good payoff if you had them. I could see a case for holding them, but I think that your net, the, the continued growth on the foils on this are not going to outpace uh, anything else. That you, other things you could be doing with the money. So even if you expect the card to go up in price, I think it's still better to sell it and try and move the funds into something a little quicker. Yeah. All right. The Ishino Pyromancer from Corset 2019. All of a sudden, the four of in the red decks. Foils went from $2 to $10, but buy lists are still in languishing in the 2 to $3 range. So if you can get $8 to $10 in trade locally for the car- copy you inadvertently opened in the last six months, then by all means do that and move on. Yeah, I, I really only left this on here so that people would know that it sold because it showed up at Indianapolis this weekend, but uh, that you should not expect to make any money off of it. And if someone offers you money for it, you should take it. Yep. Uh, final card in the week with the, in theory, biggest gains, Flesh Carver from Commander 2014. Only time that card's ever been printed, going from 60 cents or so to about 5 bucks, um, 600% plus gains, uh, almost certainly on the back of uh, Tessia Karlov for EDH. Uh, again, a rising commander out of the new set. And this is a sacrifice outlet that gets bigger and has Intimidate. And that deck probably wants, I don't know, four or five, six sack outlets, maybe even more, um, to make sure that it can double up on all of its go-to-the-graveyard triggers for its creatures. Yeah, uh, I have some thoughts on Thesia, and uh, you know I'm going to use that as an opportunity to segment into segue into segment two, our cards to watch. Um, I'm just going to jump in. My first card of the week is a Tezia card. Uh, I like Eilie. Uh, Eternal Pilgrim, the foils from Oath of the Gatewatch, uh, are currently around $3, um, and I'm hoping they'll climb up towards about 10 or so. Eilie's in about 4,500 decks right now, uh, and she's a commander of over a little a little over 1,000. So she's not, as a commander, she's not extraordinarily popular, and as a card, she's like lowish to mo- lowish moderate demand uh but the arrival of tezia is a big deal for for eilie because she's a sacrifice outlet that's also v- very useful um you know she's good in that she's quite good in that deck her abilities are very effective you really like this you like the life gain on a sacrifice uh that is a a useful tool uh for those types of decks that incidental life game really does a lot for you um, and even though her demand so far has been lowish moderate, if, you know, Tazia is cl- right now the clear runaway from uh, from Ravnica Allegiance as a new commander, which could mean a real big burst in demand for Eilie, Um which is good, which is good for her price for sure. Uh, and I think that the the Tazia decks probably, you know, you were saying five or six sack outlets. I could see upwards of 10 to 15. Um 
because that deck's really going to want to make sure it has its engine available. And if you have a lot of cards that you want to die, but no way to get rid of them, it's going to feel bad. So making sure that you have ways to kind of churn through those is important. Um, but Eilie's inexpensive. She does exactly what the deck wants. Uh, she's inexpensive monocost-wise. She's also inexpensive U.S. dollar-wise. So I, I think she's a pretty good, pretty well-positioned with Tezia's apparent popularity. Yeah, I, I can buy into this very easily. I've got a Russian pack foil that's been sitting around for a while um, that I always thought would uh, eventually get there. Um, I, th- I suspect that we're entering that era now. Um, and just even the English foils... It's just not that many lying around. It's it's had a few years to start draining out. And this card is an auto-include in the Tessa decks. And if you're like me, you have a couple of these hanging around and maybe some other cards because Jason All told you to buy black-white clerics when this was printed in <laughs> order to build a cleric deck. Uh, yeah, when are those going up, Jason? Wait, was it Jason? It was Jason, right? I'm pretty sure it was Jason. To, to Jason's credit, when they revealed the cat-based commander a few years back and cat foils all of a sudden got hot, he told everybody not to buy them, but I still bought a few that are still sitting in my box of shame. Uh, yeah, I've got a couple of those floating around, although I disagree that they were a bad decision. <laughs> well, they're, they're a bad decision until they make you money, I suppose. Well, yeah, he was, he was wrong. He was wrong. On at least 50% of those calls. So <laughs> it's no different than me being wrong at 50%. All right. So what else? What <laughs> so, have you- so you're saying it's a dice. It's a coin flip on well, what, whether any of us are right in MGG Finance. Is that your position? Yeah. What is that uh, That that statistic with like um, stockbrokers and stock traders and what have you? And over a long enough timeline, all of their bets equal out to be about 50%. And even like the best the best of the best still barely beat 50% themselves. So I don't know. I don't don't know what relevancy that could have to us. (laughs) I think we need to start publishing our spreadsheet so people know that's not quite the case. Well, but there there have been been some requests and I am working on some pretty cool tech that's going to uh, let people show off their own specs alongside our own and show how much smarter they are than us. Um, so we'll revisit that come summertime. Why do you want that? Why do you want? It's going to keep us honest. It's going to keep them honest. It's going to be gamifying the system. All at, sorts of good reasons. At no point have I wanted to be honest. That has never at any <laughs> point in time been a desire of mine. Seems nothing but bad news for us. You know, I'm all about the transparency. I think we can survive it. The um, All right. So my first pick of the week is a strong EDH card that looks like it's in surprisingly scarce position this early on in its career. I'm talking about Divine Visitation. This is the uh, foil mythic out of uh, Guilds of Ravnica from the fall. Um, you can currently pick up copies around $13 or so. And um, this is a card that is going to be in token decks aplenty for years to come in EDH. Um, basically turns all of your tokens into angels, right? Yeah, 4-4 four, four angels. Yeah. And there just aren't that many of this foil mythic sitting around. And one of the things that really caught my attention and got me looking at buying some today was that looking overseas in both Japan and Europe, I can't get them any cheaper. In fact, it's even more expensive which is an odd situation for an EDH card. So 
if this is doing well in casual circles, even overseas, then you probably don't want to wait to move in on it. And I think that it's going to be a longer term hold. I would probably plan to hold this for, you know, 12 months or so. So if you've got stuff that you think you can flip faster, then this isn't isn't your choice. But if you're perhaps looking for a copy for one of your decks um, or your your spec portfolio is is mid to long term, then I think this going from 13 to 25 is pretty much a shoe. And it's already, you know, one of the top eight EDH cards from that set supply lower than I would expect for a mythic that's less than six months old. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I wrote about this on Watchtower a couple weeks ago. It might have been like two months ago now, but I'm I, I'm fairly confident that this was on my radar as well. Uh, it's really good for EDH, right? Like that token effect is just awesome um, and right in the vein with what people want to do. Uh, I mean, you don't really need to sell me on it. And if supply is low, there's a good reason. It's because people want to play the card. Uh, so it looks, it looks, it looks quite good. There's also some guy's Twitter account where every day he posts a new combo with this card. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So, and any amount of hype will only help this back. Okay. That's a, uh, that's a guy uh, devoted to his craft. Yeah. So I'll jump in on my second pick. Um, this is a follow-up from a, a pick from a couple months ago. Actually, this is from August. So almost half a year, I suppose. Um, which is at, at that point, I called out the Masterpiece version of this card at $40. And there are still copies pretty close to that that are, are, are good buy, in my estimation. Noxious Gearhulk foils, the pack foils from Kaladesh, can still pick them up around 8 bucks. I think they were closer to 6 or 7 back in August. Um, sell target on these for, is 15 or about a 90% gain or so. Um, it's already reported in 7,000 decks on EDH Rec and um, is playable in whole slew of strategies in the format um anything that's that is looking to recurse artifacts or um is looking to do value chains um or you know so many different ways for this like open-ended beat stick to uh, keep doing well in that format and the masterpieces are very in very low supply and i suspect they're going to get from 40 to 80 this year um these pack foils slightly more of them around but still not very many and i found multiple vendors that were sold out of them and it doesn't look like i can restock overseas any cheaper so all of that leads me to believe that i should move in on a few extra copies i like noxious gearhulk i think i have a couple uh, when i thought it might be good enough in standard just you know non-foil copies because it was a standard spec but uh foils at eight bucks seems quite good uh you know if you're looking at seven thousand decks that's that's quite a helping um, and I imagine this is going to be a utility creature in black EDH decks for quite some time, uh, just because it's it's useful. Um, I, I have the MPS copies are really what intrigue me. I think forty is uh, is a little bit more than I'd want to pay, uh, but you know, depending on what supply looks like, that is that is tempting as well. Especially if this kind of continues its to look good in the format. Uh, the MPS ones are going to be really cool. And you, you don't have to worry about them getting reprinted, right? So they're only going to get better and better over time. Yeah, I mean, what if I told you there was only 11 listings and that only half of them were under $45 and then the last half were 60 to 100 I mean, that's not many. You know, I, I, I typically, I expect there to be about 80 um, of any, not 80, I'm sorry, uh, like 18 to 30 of ish of or at least vendors of any given masterpiece at this time um that seems to be kind of where they hang out 
Uh, but you know, what did you say? Like eleven? That's not many. Yeah. Exactly. That's cool. That's All cool. right. So, what's your final pick this week? I like this one. Uh, my other pick this week is a uh, little-known tribal card. Uh, you, you green guys may be familiar with it. Heritage Druid. It's uh, a rare from Eternal Masters. So after Ashnon's altars two two weeks ago, I got thinking about EMA and I was poking through some of their cards, through some of their other cards in that set this week. And Heritage Druid jumped out at me. You can get the foils for Heritage Druid at about twelve bucks right now. That supply is super low. Uh, I mean, I'm talking there might be five copies on the market right now, uh, foils at that price, maybe not even that many. Uh, so, you know, it's not like there's a deep pool here. The morning tide foils are upwards of $20 or so, $20, $25. Um, and the the ramp up to $20 on the EMA foils is, is so short, it seems like it's going to get there very soon as well. And um, we're looking at, you know, it's only about 2,000 EDH decks. It's not hugely popular in that format, but it's a key component of Elves in Modern and Legacy. It's very important there. Uh, and it's it's coming so close to the Morningtide prices. EMA is looking like it's pretty much right where we want to be on a, on, a, on a set like this, right? We're about two years past, and it seems like all the cards are about ready to start popping. Um, and uh, this is a card that is not sexy. But I think you could see $10 a piece profit uh, pretty handily. Yeah. Elf combo decks in both Modern and Legacy have been around for ages. They've never really been fully eliminated from the formats, but they haven't really dominated in a while either. The players that play them love the love their decks and they slot in the new pieces in much the same way that, you know, Corbin was diehard about Merfolk forever. Um you know, there's always going to be elf players, and there's going to be elf players in EDH as well. And Heritage of Druid is pre- is good. Pretty much any format that has an elf deck, Heritage Druid is going to be relevant. Um, and as you said, this is a supply side play. There's very few of these left lying around. Eternal Masters was a few years ago, and many of the key cards have taken off. I've pretty much sold out of my mana crypts and foil mana crypts from Eternal Masters at very good profits recently. So every time I see an Eternal Masters card on the move, I'm I'm a believer, pretty much right out of the gate. Yeah, cool. I um really, you know, what would really send this card crazy is uh they just need to print. Uh oh, god, what is it called? Oh shoot, there is an elf from Onslaught that you can tap any two Bir- elves. Birch hmm? Lord Ranger. Oh, that card. That is the card I think that would do so much. Um, because Birch Floor Ranger, uh, is it that one? Yes, tap two elves. You can tap two elves, uh, add one mana of any color. And the thing is, is that Birch Floor Ranger lets you play other colored spells in your mono green deck. So, for instance, you can oh, play yeah, yeah. back, you can play back the blue green glimpse of nature without having really need any blue sources. Like, like that, that's one of the problems with elves is that you're trying to go off on turn two, maybe turn three. So it's hard to get enough blue sources in the deck to do that consistently. But Birch Lore Ranger gives you the ability to do that and also splash other cards. Like you can also splash like slaughter games in your sideboard uh, of your mono green deck because of that tool. So uh, if that card ever gets printed in modern, I think all the elves could possibly go nuts because that could be enough to push the deck and some of its various forms into tier one. Yeah, that's not that's not happening all today. Right. 
So my final pick of the week, I think this is the weakest of the bunch um, because it hasn't shown the play pattern to necessarily get people excited, but it's also a fairly young card. So Tezzeret Artifice Master showed up in M19 last summer and currently get Foils of the Mythic Planeswalker at $12. I'm tar- picking up a few, not going deep, um, with a sell target of 20 And this is a really long hold. Like One of the better reasons not to go deep. It's going to probably be 12 to 18 months, I think, but it will get there. Um, Here's the thing. It's playable in nearly every major artifact-relevant commander um, because almost all of those commanders are either Atraxa, blue, white, green, black, or they're blue, red, or they're blue. Um, uh, Brea, Psy, Master Thopterist, etc. And Tezzeret's plus one makes Thopters, which plays into a whole bunch of things you want to be doing um, in blue with artifacts. And his zero ability draws a card, but if you control three or more artifacts, you draw two cards. And then his minus nine, which you're looking to play into a doubling season with Atraxa and and ultimate pretty much right away, um, reads, you get an emblem with at the beginning of your end step, search your library for a permanent card and put it onto the battlefield. Not bad. Not not the most game winning um, ultimate you can play into a doubling season, but still pretty good. Um, it only shows up, like I said, in about a thousand decks on EDH rec, but I suspect that that means there are five, ten, fifteen thousand players out there um, playing the card or, or possible to play the card in the near future. And twelve dollar original printing foil planeswalker that I don't think they're going to be in any rush to reprint anytime soon. Um, seems like a pretty good long term play. Oh, yeah, definitely. This card is very powerful. Uh, $12 foil planeswalkers are tempting. I don't think you tend to find them much cheaper than that for the most part. Um, it has to be a planeswalker that people really aren't that interested in for the foils to be uh, much below $10. So he feels like he's pretty close to the floor uh, in any version. He's just, he's just well-positioned, right? Foil $12 planeswalker that's playable in the most popular EDH deck in in EDH, uh, could pop up in very in modern, you know, as a site as a it's a bit of a long shot, but it's possible. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I, I like it way more as a pickup now because it probably won't get much lower kind of situation than I do as a spec. But yeah, um, I think that's I think that's correct, and I think that's generally going to be true of a lot of our EDH picks. If we don't if we don't pick up the EDH card at exactly the right time then it can turn into a several month or even a year hold. Um, and there's no real way to know when those stuff, when that stuff is going to move. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like, I'm going to get one for my Atraxa deck and have it on hand for Brea and Sia Master Thopterus, which I, I, I'm already building Brea, uh, rebuilding Brea. I probably won't build Sai, but still, I'd like to have a couple of them around. And mm-hmm. uh, let's move on to our metagame week in review. Well, can I just tell you that uh, this is a hybrid of segment one and segment two, but I wrote about um, non-foil thousand-year elixirs uh, on Monday. Uh, they were There were 40 of them at $6 on Star City. And I said, these seem like a pretty good pickup, uh, whether here or elsewhere. Um, you know, it hasn't been reprinted in quite some time. All the sets that it's been in has been low inventory. And it's really good in uh, uh, Vanifar. And then it went, I jumped from six to seven like the next day. Like four of the copies are gone from Star City and they now want seven instead of six. So it's kind of a, a little mix there. But I was just like, ooh, 
maybe I did that. Maybe I made that card go up a dollar <laughs> and sell four copies. I hope so. At, at minimum, your finger is on the pulse there, and those are going to clear out and, and bump up, and that could easily end up being a 15 or $20 card. That would be cool. All right, so let's talk about uh, Star City Games Open, first one of the standard season in Indianapolis. We had Sultai Agro, Bant Control, Esper Control, White Weenie, Esper Control, Esper Midrange, Grixis Drake, Sultai Agro. Other than the, I think that was a, yeah, I mean, even the aggro builds here um, have some mid-rangey elements, um, but notably missing was no ooze, no mono red, and no black red, which have been dominating on arena because they're best at one format. But once they got to sideboard land, um, they didn't seem to at least for week one at this particular tournament, turn out in the numbers that we have gotten used to seeing from red decks early in a format. Yeah, this was, I felt like <clears throat> this was all about, uh, all about mid range, right? There was a lot of mid range this week, um, way more than we're used to seeing in week one. Um, I mean, even Mono Red was pretty low, low impact in contrast to where you would expect it to be. You know, it tends to come on a little harder in the fall, in the brand new standard format, rather than one a little bit more settled. Um, but even still, uh, this was all about mid-range. And the cards that people were expecting to see, like uh, Evolving I'm, Wilderness Reclamation, I'm going to get that wrong every time. I'm always going to want to say Evolving Wilds. Um, even the cards like that that people were expecting to see really didn't have much of a showing. And I saw several pros talking about how the difference between best of one uh, really warps what is going to show up in, you know, in online versus what you see in paper and how it's essentially going to build two different formats. Yeah, if I, if I had to pick out a winner, like a card that is just clearly like, boom, this is the card of the format right now. I, it's not even Hydroid Crassus. It's... Um... Uh, jade light ranger <laughs> no not well i mean jade light ranger is is certainly in the discussion but i think it's wild growth uh sorry um uh yeah wild growth walker because wild mm. growth walker um is a big part of how these like green mid-range builds survive the aggro decks it's a one three body um whenever a creature you control explores you put a plus one plus one counter on it which just makes it bigger and bigger and easier and easier to block things and you gain three life so then in combination with the uh, eight explorer creatures, four Merfolk Br Branchwalker, um, which explores, uh, and four Jade Light Ranger, which double explores, right? Um, you end up gaining a bunch of life. And then in tandem with having two or three copies, usually of Raska's Contempt, which exiles creatures or Planeswalkers and gains your life, that's putting you just out of reach of the aggro decks. Um, and so it's not super surprising to me that these like salty value builds that have some life gain and some very efficient two for ones in the form of like ravenous chupacabra and jade light ranger and hydroid crassus which can be a three for one or a four for one depending on how late the game is going carnage tyrant which you know is just a, a dominant force once it's on the battleground and then them being able to follow up with fine finalities where they make some of their creatures with really high toughness survive the minus four minus four that clears the aggro side of the board that is a very, like, if you were just kind of, like, trying to put an archetypal mid-range deck in the encyclopedia of magic, I would argue that these Sultai builds would be a strong candidate. 
Oh yeah. And I mean, you can look at the removal suite too. And it's like a bunch of just generically useful removal spells that are likely to have targets against pretty much everybody. And there's that like one, three, two, one mix type of thing. Uh, they're very effective uh, mid-range decks. They're, they're essentially the new Jund, I would say. Uh, and they're Jundier than most of the standard gun lists have been in the past almost. Uh, it's going to be hard for, for both control and aggro to battle with those tools. There's just a lot in there. And Hydrate Crisis is a really good example of that, right? Like that's exactly the type of card that those decks want to play. It gains them a couple life, puts a reasonable threat on the board, draws a couple more cards, which are all going to be, you know, normal, just useful removal spells. Uh, you know, if you've got standard players who have never played modern, um, or didn't play standard back in Alara days, they are getting a real taste of what it's like to play against uh, Jund at this point. They don't have the hand disruption that Jund did, but they still have quite a bit of quite a few of the tools. Yeah, I, I guess the the second place list, the band control list, is the most interesting because it has the mythic that did much better than people were expecting. Angel of Grace is a four of. Yeah, that's um, real I think weird. Probably surprised people. This is the flash flying five four for three and two white. When it enters the battlefield until end of turn, damage that would reduce your life total to less than one reduces it to one instead. So it can basically stave off death for a turn. And then you can exile it um, from your graveyard to make your life total 10. So one of the consistent themes here throughout versus the aggro decks is every, no matter what color combination, you have some form of life gain. So Angel of Grace can basically take away the like the final aggro turn and give you a chance to stabilize. And then if you somehow get it to die in combat because you flash it in, um, let it block something, it dies, and then you go back up to 10, that can be the, the time you need to take back control of the game. And this Bant list was also running um, uh, for Growth Chamber Guardian, which I think is also probably a prime candidate for one of the more important cards in the format. Saw a lot of that on camera this weekend. Um, just the... The ability to be a modest creature that grows into a serious creature and pulls extra copies of itself out as the game progresses is just crazy pants. Um, also cool that the Bant list was running four Frilled Mystic, which is basically the new and improved Mystic Snake. Two green, two blue, counter a spell when it comes into play, flash three, two. Um, and then over in the Esper Control lists, um, you saw four Absorb all over the place. Uh, that's worth noting because Invasion Absorbs are now up to about 15 bucks. So if you have any of those sitting around in your old binders, you probably want to pull them out and push them into the market while they're getting as good. Um, original printings from 10, 15 years ago can suddenly be worth money um, if they're relevant and standard and people are looking to trick out their decks a little bit. Yeah, I've got Japanese foils somewhere. Oh, I might order. I think I ordered those on MKM. I think that's where I grabbed them. I think I remember telling you about it. I paid like 50 bucks a piece, 45 bucks a piece, but I still yeah, like I'm, that. I'm curious if you can get out on those. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so Esper decks, a lot of them running four copies of Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, um, two Search for Azkanta. They were almost all of them were running a Chromium the Mutable, but I don't think that's going to move the needle on that card. Yeah. Kaya's Wrath um, looks like a card that uh, could see some additional gains. Um, very popular as, again, a Wrath um, variant that also gains life. And this is the, you look at all these cards that are kind of like the hallmarks of these various archetypes, and all of them are defined against the speed of the aggro. Yeah, it seems like they really, aggro always sort of sets the bar 
for what you can get away with with new decks in standard. Uh, but it seems like the deck, new decks this time, the anti-aggro decks, uh, have a few more tools than they usually do. That or reds not doesn't quite have the pieces. Maybe people just haven't figured it out yet. I'm not sure. Um, but it does not look hot for them. It could also be that people are just building off of the arena lists and they kind of showed up with their, their red list from arena expecting that to get the job done and are finding, uh, oh, it's a different format here, right? There's, you know, I'm, I'm, I built my deck and my list for, for arena best of ones, but that's not what people are showing up to these opens with. And I'm going to have to kind of split my list here. Um, I don't know. That could be part of it as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll have more results this weekend. We'll be able to see how things are shaping up. So far, we in the, you know, coming out of this tournament, I'd say Hydroid Crassus from the weekend is the is the big winner, along with uh, Biogenic Ooze. Ooze, I would get out right away. Crassus, because it's a myth, a standard mythic, it, just in print, it's over $30. That's an instant sell. doesn't matter if it gets to 40 or 50 you leave that for somebody else to collect. If you're holding a bunch, you want to out these while the getting is good, before people have built their decks for the season. Oh, 100%, 100%. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning, though, is like from from me, my perspective as somebody who's holding a bunch of older cards, but doesn't hasn't really dumped in on many of the standard specs, um, absorb, as I said, from invasion, but also the uh, original Ravnica uh, Shocklands um, are now in in high demand, and you can get very good money if you have original shocks, um, unless you have some kind of particular emotional attachment to them. Strongly recommend pulling original shocks out of binders and decks and whatever, and replacing them with new cheaper shocks. Because on some of those things like Stomping Grounds and Hallowed Fountain, Steam Vents, you can get $15, $20, $25 even from buy lists. Um, I pulled out a whole pile of stuff from, from decks this week and realized it was two or $300 worth of trade-in value. Mm, yeah, those have been valuable for a while. I don't know if it's just... Um, I, you know, I haven't checked the prices like in the last couple, in the last week or two to see how they compare, but they've been pricier than the, uh, than the Return of the Ravnica ones for quite some time. People like those quite a bit. Also worth noting noting that even the Dominaria lands, like Hinterland Harbor that was originally printed in Innistrad and then again in Dominaria, you can get like four to six dollars cash or credit. Um like Card Kingdom's offering four seventy US cash for Dominaria Hinterland Harbors. Um and Innistrad versions are a little less. So if you've got a pile of those sitting around that were languishing before they rotated back into the standard format, definitely this is your chance to get out on those um before they fade back into obscurity. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'd be selling the heck out of those. I have the old that's Innistrad all... ones. Maybe I should dig them out. Yeah, that's also going to be true of things like Isolated Chapel. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever, whatever. I would say like the Chapel and Harbor are probably going to do best for you. Um, I think Chapels. Yeah, they're offering four fifty five eighty five on Dominaria Chapels and the exact same price on the Innistrad Isolated Chapels. And I had a bunch of those sitting around that I got at like 350 or something back in like June of 2015. Um, definitely time to trade those in for money. Yeah, no kidding. Um, okay, so you wanted to talk about Trophy Gate, uh, Trophy Gate right? So for those who don't know, Wizards has really been... Uh, <laughs> there was all the changes to the... Uh, pro structure, the you know the Magic Fest, right? The name Magic Fest is quite a big change. Well, they announced the ten million dollars for the upcoming arena, you know, paper slash digital tournament series, blah blah blah. Well, they didn't announce everything, so 
tweets started making their way out Sunday evening that the trophy that you might have seen in the photos at New Jersey, which there weren't all that many of, actually said Vancouver on it. Uh, and it was from last year. Or was it Montreal? It was one of the two. It was not for this event. Uh, they just had the winner hold the trophy for promo shots, but then he didn't get to take it home. Um, the So there's no trophy there at all. The Channel Fireball tweeted out that Wizards ordered the trophies, but they didn't come in soon enough. Uh, so that's why the, he didn't get one, and they're going to be distributing them later on. I don't know if that's true, and this is just Wizards saw how pissed people got about the trophy, and then really quickly ordered a bunch of trophies for the upcoming events and then told Channel Fireball to tweet that out. It was quite a while after people started complaining about the trophies that Channel Fireball made the announcement, which leads me to believe that there was a lot, of, plenty of time in there for Wizards who have decided not to do trophies, keep their mouth shut about it, see how angry people got about it, and then be like, whoops, never mind, we, we'll give them to you, we'll give them to you. On top of that, on top of that, everyone was looking for the video coverage from this weekend, only to find out there wasn't any. Uh, and when they're like, where's the video coverage? Well, there's like, oh, did we not mention that? We are basically canceling video coverage for Magic Fests as well. And it was like most of. Yeah. And it, like a severe reduction. I was like, what? And and today there was a guy. Uh, I don't have his name handy. I would have to scroll back through my Twitter feed. But he's a very well-known photographer in the magic world. He covers a lot of events. You, there's no way you haven't seen his photographs. Um, Wizards contacted him about two weeks ago and said, we don't need you anymore. We're not really going to do photos on site anymore. Either that or they went with somebody else. So there's No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's not just him. They released tons of contractors. They've, they've, the whole, I think that the, the stuff about him and the stuff about the trophy is actually red herrings. Like It's possible the trophy was just a mistake. It's more about they have dis dismantled the entire pageantry of GPs. Yeah. So the concept of them, of something that is going to be covered in print, because it's also print coverage didn't exist. There was no deck list until the very end of the weekend. So no text coverage, no video coverage. I heard that they were tearing down the venue early. The the top eight was a bunch of guys sitting at a table that looked like your you know average LGS draft like absolutely no pageantry around be making top eight. The trophy wasn't ready. The you know he doesn't get the the professional photo of him winning the GP that he can show off to people. It's just a complete disassembling of what we've come to expect from the highest level of play short of the pro tour. And so the the question now on everybody's lips is. Is this going to be the new norm? Are they? Are they? Is it possible that Channel Fireball is not doing well with GPs? Are they going to be backing off that? Is this like a precursor to discussions that have already gone gone on about how, you know, six months months from now, maybe GPs have been greatly reduced or reformulated, or you know, something else is going to happen? Or is it just going to be that you know the overpriced GPs people were already not happy about have been rebranded as Magic Fests, but they're going to be mysteriously, um non-viral like no no photo no video coverage no text coverage means that it's almost impossible to tap into the excitement of the event which in theory was always there so that it would pull more people into future events right like the whole idea about promoting your event even in the moment and afterward is to generate the see you know play magic see the world or at least get in your a car with your friends and at six in the morning and drive eight hours to get to this event <laughs> or something like to create to 
represent culture and community in a way that will propagate the purchasing of cards as relates to participating in this ongoing series of events. It's incredibly strange to me as a professional marketer that they think Arena and Twitch is going to do all the work that GPs used to do and are reallocating funds accordingly, which is my interpretation of what's going on here. I, I it, these decisions are all so odd that it's really hard to put your finger on. Like, is this just is it a company with that just has a completely wrong perspective on how OP is supposed what they what what they what OP should be? Like, is there a, a quote unquote correct OP setup, organized play setup that that exists right? In some in some universe that exists, and Wizards doesn't know what it is, and they're flailing wildly trying to find it, and we may never get it in this universe. Is it possible that they have access to all sorts of information that's telling them this is the right play, but it just sucks for those of us that are expecting something different? Uh, is it a case that they know what it's supposed to look like, and they just keep screwing it up? Is it the case that they have a bunch of employ- new employees in the OP program who are scrambling to get on board and kind of figure things out and are learning in a very public way, trial by fire? I don't know. And it's it's weird. It's, it's, it's odd. It's very odd how all of this is playing out uh, because it's it feels so so poorly chosen from our side that you have to wonder if Wizards knows something that we don't. But when you see nothing but, but bad PR the whole time, you're like, do they know something we don't or are they just screwing this up? And it goes back to my comment but, earlier that it's like sometimes you're just like, well, this doesn't seem like it should work, but it does because people are dumb. So maybe that's just kind of what's happening here. OK, so the optics are terrible. They, they, their PR teams dubious at best. <laughs> um, and to me, that's not an organized play problem so much as it is a lack of coordination between the various elements that need to be involved in these kinds of events, including PR, the logistics people behind organized play and the like total brand marketing team. But here's what I imagine is happening from an agency perspective. When you think about something like arena or Twitch, it gives hard statistics. It gives metrics that you can, that you can model around. So you can say, if we have this many people on Arena, this is the kind of increase in total brand revenues we can expect on the digital side. And this is how we think it models into boosting physical card sales based on our previous experience with Duels of the Planeswalkers and the information they have from years of running Magic Online. Um, When we do these kind of ad campaigns around these digital products, this is what we tend to see happen in subsequent months on on the paper side and when we're talking about twitch streamers they have the same kind of thing they can look at a different metric they can look at number of eyeballs on target and they can say we're going to sponsor all these people and part of that sponsorship is giving them digital like like basically uh, staff accounts that are fully stocked with cards which basically cost us nothing and in exchange these people are going to promote the game kind of 24 7 we're gonna we're going to um Make it so that you can watch Magic on Twitch at any time at all. And the overall cost of that compared to running a coverage team is X versus Y. And it's better from a financial perspective, raw. And the metrics that come out of it 
are more easy to hang our hat on and report up the chain towards Hasbro or to at least the senior executives at Watsi. And that's what I think is going down is that the, the they suspect that digital is the future. They think esports is the future and the metrics are more easy to wrap their hands around. Whereas at a GP, you put all this money into the prizes, you put the money into the staff to cover it, the written coverage, the photographers, all of the contractors, all of that stuff. And at the end of the day, all you really know is how many people showed up and played in the various events. And that set of metrics may be less compelling to them than where they think they're supposed to be headed with the brand. However, it's hard It's hard as a Magic player not to look at this and go, wait a second, like, didn't you just rename this whole thing as Magic Fest? And you were talking about how they were going to be bigger, better, more events? Like, as... The, the reason to go from the word Grand Prix to Magic Fest is that a Grand Prix suggests a competitive event. A Magic Fest suggests a celebration of the brand and every aspect, cosplay, <laughs> art, um, vending, et cetera, the, the name, collecting. And play. the name Magic Fest suggests that their PR team did a terrible job branding those. <laughs> so, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, everybody still agrees the name is bad, but but from a repositioning perspective, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. If what you're trying to accomplish is we want more people to come out to the, we, we think more people will come to these events if they're less about competition and more about fun. That's what they're trying to do. Yes. From, that's the agency pitch. So part of that might have been them thinking like only the competitive players care about the coverage and the fun players will still show up. That's a dangerous experiment to run in the way that they're running it. And as someone who doesn't really care about competing at this point, but does care about fun, I still feel like there is a loss if they're not going to cover the events. I still want to know who's winning. I want to follow along. I want to see how you know what cards are doing well. And one of the potential um, outcomes of all of this from a fin- MTG finance perspective is the information that we glean from top eight lists is going to be sublimated and more and more of the information is going to be coming from streamers and YouTube, which is more casually focused. So you're going to have situations where people think red decks are really good going into tournaments because they've been winning, you know, best of one on arena. And then when they get to sideboard land, they get wrecked Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and people are going to make the wrong calls in terms of what specs are because the, the dominant information flow is going to be, inaccurate or coming from sources that are not uh relevant to the paper world and this is not all that different than say if you get most of your mtg finance information from rudy you're going to get a sprinkling of truth in with a bunch of nonsense there's there's more Um, to it than that too because uh sometimes knowing whether a card is good or not isn't about seeing how many copies show up in the top eight it's about seeing it on camera Right. A lot, you know, you'll frequently hear us and other people talk about like, well, you know, the card looks good on paper. It doesn't look good, but we won't really know until we see it in action. Like, what is it? How does it actually play in the course of a game of magic? And uh, a lot of times cards that don't look like much play very well. A hydroid crisis. I'm looking at you. And other cards look fantastic, but when you watch them get played, you're like, ah, "This looks better than it's doing." And getting to watch that on coverage kind of gives you that feel. Like, how good was this for him? Did he win every time he cast it, or you know, was it really letting him down? And like, there can only be one guy in the top eight playing the card, but you can get a lot of sense of the card's power by watching it get played. Uh, and you're going to lose that. So then, you know, it's harder to spot those diamonds in the rough because you can't you can't 
intuit the strength of the card based on watching it perform. Um, and that that's one of the ways that this will impact the finance component. I also want to just go on record as saying people were complaining about the appearance of um, of the top eight, right? Like the just, you know, 10 sad, lonely people sitting around a table and that was the whole finals of the GP. Uh, I got news for you. That's what the, all the finals of GPs look like, except for maybe Vegas. So I don't know why people were upset about that. That seemed par for the course. I, I don't remember ever seeing a top eight that looked that sad. To I be mean, honest. Do they they don't typically show photos of the wider room for top eights, right? Like you don't really see. No, no, but I'm just there. talking about they just had them sitting at one of the normal tables. Usually, they at least they have, have them behind like a special area where people can like. I remember being at one where I had to go up into an amphitheater to watch players play just in feature matches. A GP that sounds like a like, feature of the venue rather than a standard component. But no, but this was set up. This was set up by the tournament tournament organizer, right? So the, I mean, I have seen greater pageantry at GPs. I know that for a fact. I mean, I have as well. But I have I've been to a lot of GPs. I've never seen them build a separate pit to draft in that you couldn't stand in. They've done occasionally they do the little walkway. I've seen them do the little walkway around it, but I don't know if that was a Star City mm. event or a GP. The point the point my point is just the finals of GPs have always felt anticlimactic. Um so this one might have been on the lower end of the scale, but I didn't find it dramatically worse than I've experienced in the past. None of that is an excuse for the lack of photos or video or the trophies or what have you. You know, the the yeah. real the real the real cherry on the top is they released that promotional video. I don't I don't know when this video came out, but they released that promotional video and like the tagline was the world will know. Like if are you good at magic? Are you winning? Are you competing? The world will know how good of a player you are. And it's like, will they? Will they know? Because I'm thinking they won't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So well, it'd be interesting to see how this all develops and how the community responds to it. Um, I mean, there's some people that say that, think that this is undermining paper magic sum total, that this is like Wizards pulling back from wanting people to be playing magic in public. Um, and I, I find that very unlikely that that's what they're trying to achieve. Um, I, I think that organized play drives a tremendous amount of sales and to not have a functional organized play reformulated to optimize sales would be a massive miss. Yeah. Let, let, we'll have, everybody will be following along, so I'm sure this will not be the last time we talk about uh, this. No, really can't imagine that what's the case. <laughs> um, okay, anything else you want to cover this week? I think we're good for now, brother. All right. Well, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. All right. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I also do the uh, the Watchtower series every Monday over at MTG Price. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. 
You can also check out our Discord channel if you are a pro trader. We're still onboarding people all the time on that. Uh, reach out to me on Twitter and I will hook you up. All right. Uh, that brings us to the end of episode 153. Uh, it was a good one. Uh, delayed a little by the weather, but hopefully you guys will tolerate it. Uh, if not, too bad we can do about it. I enjoyed it, and I will see you again next week, James. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.